from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Let's keep doing it until somebody stops us. That happens all the time. Turns this into an Eric Schmidt special. And it's going to just muddle the waters. It's the true American way, just hit them in the pocket. She was told multiple times that she needed to stop. Is it possible that something unethical has happened here? There's a thing called precedent. (laughs) An average of 33 million page views every month. As with everything else in the law, there are some exceptions. Can't some lawyer take him aside and share what you just shared with me? I'm Sarah Fenske. We've all seen the news reports. Missouri has entered a state of mass confusion over masks and other public health guidelines. Attorney General Eric Schmidt has threatened legal action against county health departments and public school districts that continue to enforce mask mandates. Some have folded. Others are fighting back. So what does the law actually say about who's in charge in Missouri right now? And could that change depending on appeals court justices? Today is our legal roundtable, and clearly we have a lot to dig into. Fortunately, our panel today features one of its founding members. Mark Smith is a longtime attorney and the former associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. Mark, welcome. Uh, Great to be here, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor for the St. Louis Circuit Attorney, as well as the U.S. Attorney's Office. She's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law, LLC. Nicole, welcome. Thanks for having me. And also today, we're joined by Connie McFarland Butler. She was the first African-American woman to make partner at Armstrong Teasdale. And since 2009, she has run her own law firm in Florissant. The law office of Connie McFarland Butler handles everything from family law to personal injury to small business representation. Connie, welcome back. Thank you, Sarah. Good afternoon. So we'll talk about the state of mass and mask confusion in Missouri in just a bit. And we'll also talk about the legal troubles facing right-wing St. Louis blogger, the Gateway Pundit. First up, though, something very timely and tragic. On December 10th, an Amazon warehouse in Edwardsville was hit by a tornado. Six workers died. And in the aftermath, regulators and observers alike are asking questions about Amazon. So, Connie, I want to start with you. The six people who died in this Edwardsville warehouse. They were on the clock. What duties did Amazon have to these workers? Well, uh, under federal and Illinois law, every employer is required to maintain a safe and a healthy work environment for their employees. I guess one of the questions uh, becomes is whether or not these individuals who unfortunately passed away were in fact employees or actual independent contractors that were hired by Amazon. Many of the individuals who work at the facility are in fact independent contractors. And oftentimes employers will classify an independent, uh, an employee as an independent contractor as a way to avoid paying unemployment of benefits as well as workers' compensation, taxes, and social security. So. Uh, the, the, the company's obligation to the employees or independent contractors, as well as the employees' rights 
and the family's rights for filing suit following this incident will really depend on their status at the time of death. So, Mark, if they were independent contractors, they were there in that warehouse working, would that be a good defense for Amazon? We don't have to provide a safe environment. These aren't technically employees. Yeah, no, they still have to provide a safe work environment. And and here's the thing, before you even get to that, uh, because I think this is something a lot of people don't understand. They think that employers can just kind of say, you're an employee, you're an independent contractor, and just, you know, like naming people doesn't work that way. Um, the Both at the federal level and the state level, um, regardless of how the employee is classified, uh, the government agency can come in and take a look and decide, well, even though you said this person is an independent contractor, they're really an employee. And and the mechanism they use to make that determination is the amount of control the employer has over the employee. And it's different at the federal and in each state slightly. And in Illinois, there were a couple of cases um, with truck drivers. Uh, both cases involved truck drivers. One came down in 2007, one came down in 2016. And in one case, they found the persons, the the employees were employees. And in the second case, they found the folks were independent contractors and it was based on the amount of control. Um, and and they use a number of factors to look at that. There's still a standard, um, you know, in in the workforce. And I think one of the big things will be, did they have a place for these employees to go in an unsafe situation? And it sounds like they did. Um, that's my understanding. Although OSHA is investigating, Pritzker and the state of Illinois are investigating. So I think we don't know all the facts. The the um, it sounds like the employees who passed were all at the south end of the store. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then everyone who went to the north end of the store um, did not, it was relatively they safe. Yeah. yeah, they survived. And I'm not sure if there were two like spaces uh, to be, you know, like for, to go in an emergency or if they just didn't make it to the north one. I, I'm not clear. And I, I wasn't clear from what I've seen. The other thing is, you know, this building obviously fell apart, and I think it's it's called a tilt-up concrete structure. And I saw some writing saying these are, you know, not the safest structures in, in really severe weather. The issue here is, my understanding is, you know, you had person A who built the structure, person B who then owned the structure, and then Amazon who leased the structure for the work. And so if it was unsafe, you'd have to prove that Amazon somehow knew that. And I think that would be really tough. That would be hard. If this building was built up to code, if they followed all the rules and the building was still unsafe, could that still be a factor in litigation, Uh, Mark? Yeah, I think it could be a factor. And and I think another factor would be, well, did the Amazon supervisors respond quickly to whatever warnings and notices they were getting? Did they let people... Um, react and, and you know that we were talking before the show started about whether there was some employees who wanted to leave. I think Nicole knows more about that. But but um, yeah, did they react quickly? The other thing is, you know, if you're an employee versus an independent contractor, then you have workers comp, and workers comp is both a it's a sword and a shield. It's it's a way for employees to collect damages when they're injured at work. But it also shields employees because it limits damages. So, so you know, some employees, if the empl- if the worker is 
a little undefined, the employer might go out of their way to say, no, this was an employee because it provides the shield. Um, that would cap and, maybe some damages? Yeah, damages. It, yeah exactly. Oh, interesting. Exactly. So, uh, you know, there are cases like where people have heart attacks in the hot tub at a conference while they're drinking and everything. And if somebody else is hurt, you might want to not want to say they're an employee or argue they're an employee. But if it's just that person who's hurt, you might want to say, no, that was in the course of the business. Uh, it was within the scope of employment and everything. So let's get it under workers' comp. Hmm. So a lot of times, yeah, lawyers want to know who got hurt, what was happening uh, before we start trying to make the argument of whether they're an independent contractor or an employee. Nicole, I'd love to hear your yeah, thoughts on this. So- there has been a lawsuit filed in this case, and I think a lot of people have heard that, you know, um, the famous, you know, civil rights lawyer Ben Crump has, has come into town and has filed a lawsuit in this case. And I think um, people have probably also heard on the news that OSHA is coming to investigate. And, you know, um, a lot of the questions about what duty an employer has to their employees um, is yet to be answered. And and the reason is what OSHA does So a lot of people have heard of OSHA but don't necessarily know exactly what that means. So OSHA says that that an employer has a duty to provide a safe workplace, have an emergency plan and safety procedures for the employees. So I think part of what OSHA is coming to investigate, and probably Illinois has something, you know, similar where their investigators are going to work in close contact with OSHA, is looking into first of all, not just the structure of the building, but also what were the safety procedures? What were the emergency plans? And so part of this lawsuit is going to turn on, you know, what safety procedures did Amazon have? What were the policies in place? Were those policies followed on that day? Mm -hmm. And that's going to make a huge difference in the case. And so a lot of this remains to be seen about the duty and then was that followed. So I think the lawsuit um, and any potential lawsuits to follow are going to turn a lot on that. So this was a a million square foot warehouse. And Amazon has said, you know, people had just a few minutes to get quickly to safety. Now, we know in St. Louis that night, we were getting quite a bit of warning that a tornado was on on the way. A lot of us, like our phones were just going off and and buzzing and buzzing. If Amazon didn't immediately act on that and say, hey, start moving towards these safe places, Connie, do you think they could be in some trouble here? Uh, I think that it certainly would increase their level of liability. Uh, there was a recent news, newspaper article where the uh, fiance, significant other of one of the workers uh, who actually died uh, on the night of the tornado uh, indicated that uh, uh, her fiance had texted her roughly about 20 minutes before uh, the uh, a tornado tornado actually, you know, uh, affected the facility. So 20 minutes uh, is a long time relative, but it's a long time for uh, Amazon to be put on notice and for the company to act. And so this I is, think that that timing plays a role. Connie, if I'm, if I'm thinking of the same person here, I think this was her father and he wanted to leave. He was told not to leave. He ended up dying. I mean, that seems, if I'm a juror, I'm struck to my core by that. Absolutely. Um, uh, 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 the article that I read involved an actual girlfriend, and they were tech- 
texting back and forth. Uh, an individual wanted to leave and apparently uh, discussed it with the supervisor and that he was not permitted to leave. Hmm. Well, Mark, let's go to that hot tub that you were talking about earlier. Uh, I don't mean literally. <laughs> we're not going to oh, move yeah. this legal roundtable <laughs> to a hot tub. Um, right. But what if they had let this guy leave and then he would have been struck by a tornado on the way home? Would right. they have had liability in that scenario as well? So we were talking about that before the show as well. I mean, on the one hand, you know, what do they tell you in a tornado? If you're in your car, get out of your car, get in a safe place. You're supposed to be in a building with, you know, where there's no windows because the the risk is the flying material. So on the one hand, um, it seems like a, a dangerous thing to let somebody leave a building to go out. But on the other hand, yeah, once they leave work, uh, your, your liability, whether you're an employer or uh, hiring an independent contractor is probably uh, diminished because mm-hmm. they're no longer working for you and they've, they're, they're on their own. So I think it's really tough, you know, and I, but I suspect what they were saying is don't leave because we're concerned for your safety. I suspect what they were saying is don't leave because we have work to get done and we need you to stay here. And and that's a very different situation. Yeah, I mean, so, there, there are text messages that have come out where drivers, who, again, were subcontractors, right. but the driver supervisors were saying, you know, if you're <laughs> if you're stopping driving now, if you're taking shelter, this is going to be viewed fired. as you refusing your route, and that will end with you not having a job to come in tomorrow. Right. I mean, that kind of right. suggests people were meant to keep working. And the thing is, you know, when you tr- if, if a case goes to trial and it gets as far as a jury and everything, this is the kind of stuff that, while it may not be legally significant, is going to really hurt a place like Amazon uh, because jurors are human beings. And, and, you know, you got to make the legal case. And oftentimes that's kind of boring. It's just fact A, fact B. But but then you got all this sizzle part that really sells it to the jury. And, and And, you know, and there was... The, uh, I guess Bezos was talking about his his uh, space launch, and didn't mention what happened. So you know the the optics and the publicity are just terrible for Amazon, and it's you know for a lot of people, I think Amazon is like a necessary evil. You know, you you, you feel terrible doing it. I know if I buy a book there, that's money that could have gone to Left Bank Books, and I'd rather do that, but. It's just so damn easy sometimes Mm -hmm. that you go ahead and hold your nose and do it. And so people have a love-hate relationship. So one last thing as it comes to juries, and again, I think you make a great point, Mark, that a jury could want to tear into this company. This Edwardsville is based in Madison County, Illinois. And this is a place that has been listed as a quote-unquote judicial hellhole. Now, that is coming from um, employers. (laughs) You know, they are saying this is a hellhole. The defense bar. Yeah, the defense bar. Thank you. Uh, But so how could that factor into what's happening here? Nicole, do you think this will be a big factor that this is a place that is good uh, for plaintiff's lawyers? Sure. I mean, you always consider your venue when you're filing a lawsuit and the fact that it is a place that I'm just going to say is positive to plaintiffs, (laughs) then yes, it is going to make it. I think it makes a difference. It's certainly something that people consider when they're filing lawsuits and when they're, I mean, when you're talking about a lawsuit, everybody's considering their risk and that certainly factors into the risk that you take uh, on both sides. 
Connie, yep, I imagine absolutely. there's a ton of good lawyers right now who are hoping to get a piece of this. I mean, this seems like something where a lawyer could really have a field day with some of these facts here. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 unfortunate that, you know, we already have out of town attorneys who are coming in and swooping up and taking advantage of this tragedy. Uh, I, I would hope the families would consider local attorneys to handle, you know, these issues who are familiar with the jurisdiction, who are familiar with the judges and the rules and the procedures. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that there are plaintiff's attorneys all over the country who are swooping in trying to, you know, take advantage of this litigation and take advantage of, you know, the case actually, uh, the, the events actually occurring in Madison County. Uh, oftentimes, uh, plaintiff's attorneys are, are, are reaching and stretching to make that connection. And, you know, based upon some of the cases and verdicts that have come out of Madison County in the past, it doesn't take very much uh, to establish a connection with Madison County and to get jurisdiction in Madison County. And a lot of times you have a plaintiff's attorneys out of Texas and all over the country who are attempting to file in Madison County because it has been deemed as one of the most litigious counties in the state of uh, in the state of Illinois and also in the United States of America. And you also have a defendant that has extremely deep pockets. I mean, so this is everything comes together. Having said all that, I mean, and this is one of the big shortcomings of the law. Um, we can't, I mean, this is a tragedy and the law can't undo it. And giving people money um, doesn't bring their loved one back. And that's what everyone would want. And so what the law tries to do oftentimes is make decisions that will help avoid this tragedy in the future. So maybe uh, they say, let's let's hit them with a big verdict because then in the future, employers will be quicker to put people in safe places. Uh, so we don't have it. You can never bring these people back. Like I said, it's a tragedy that can't be undone, but maybe the law can help avoid tragedies like this in the future. That's the hope for the law. Right. I mean, not to go on my big, long soapbox here, but that's why we have seatbelts and that's why we have child seats and all of those policies were made because of lawsuits. Yes. We're talking today to our legal roundtable. That includes Nicole Gorofsky, now in practice at Gorofsky Law, uh, Mark Smith, a former uh, associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University, and Connie McFarland Butler of the law office of Connie McFarland Butler. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll discuss the sea of confusion and legal battles over public health directives in Missouri. And we'll also discuss lawsuits against the right wing website, The Gateway Pundit. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Our legal roundtable is in session today. Now, the big legal news in this past month involved battles over mask mandates and other COVID precautions. A group that opposed these mandates filed suit in Cole County. The state attorney general defended the state health department. He lost, and apparently those mandates were struck down. And then despite some urging from his client, the attorney general decided not to appeal. He said he would enforce the ruling across the state, and he did. He wrote letters to 
school districts and public health agencies alike threatening legal action if they continue to try to enforce mandates and other public health measures. There is a lot of confusion over whether people need to comply with this ruling, pay attention to these letters, or whether there's a good case that they can just fight back here. Nicole Gorofsky, I understand, has actually read the judge's ruling in here. Nicole, get us up to speed. What happened in Cole County? Okay, so I'm going to try to bring this back to the very basics and start from the beginning. So um, Judge Green's uh, ruling in Cole County, basically he even says, let's start from our eighth grade civics. So basically we have an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch. Everybody knows that. We have separation of powers between those branches. So the legislative, and, and, and in this case we're talking specifically about the legislative branch and the executive branch. Um, the legislative branch makes laws, the executive branch enforces laws. So what the judge basically says is, and and what I want to say about this, I'll, I'll tell you, all of this part of the ruling is basic constitutional law. I'll tell you when sort of the new law um, comes into the case. But basically this judge says you can't have legislative and an executive function in the same body. So specifically here we're ta talking about the Department of Health and Human Services. So um, the Missouri Constitution and, in fact, the United States Constitution says that a legislative body generally um, has to keep their legislative function. They can't delegate that function to a different body, like an executive body. But as with everything else in the law, there are some exceptions. So a legislative body can delegate some of their authority if there's a definite standard and no arbitrary discretion involved. So both the United States and the Missouri Constitution say that. So we have several delegations of authority in Missouri um, and where uh, the legislative branch has delegated authority to the executive branch. And it's usually some type of agency with specialized expertise. Like a so public health department. Of, like the public health department. That's exactly what I was going to say. So. The, what the judge says is you can't give arbitrary discretion, though. They can't delegate something that has arbitrary discretion. So, um, like I said, you have delegated authority in the Department of Human Services. But, but what the judge says, so the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, in this case, says uh, they have the authority to determine what infectious diseases are out there and then enforce orders to prevent the spread. This is where this judge then makes sort of a new ruling where the court says that's a legislative function and an executive function in one. So the uh, designating what is an infectious disease and then making an order to prevent the spread is a legislative and an executive function in one. And the judge says, even though we've been doing that for, you know, over 100, of, 100 years in Missouri, that's not allowed because that's giving legislative and executive function in the same body. And it's a delegation of something that this judge claims is has arbitrary discretion and um, no accountability because uh, it's not an elected official. So this judge says it's unconstitutional to allow the Department of Health and Human Services um, or in other words, public health departments to do this, especially in Missouri. So, Nicole, I got to cut in here. I mean, sure. I'm following how you're you're laying this out. How would this possibly be a problem for school boards? I mean, school so, boards are elected and Eric Schmidt is threatening yeah. them with legal action over this ruling. 
So this is where Eric Schmidt turns this into an Eric Schmidt special because it really isn't a problem for school boards because school boards are elected legislative bodies and they are allowed to, they are not the same as the as a public health department. So they are elected officials and they are legislative bodies. So they are under this, under this court order, they are allowed to make these type of rulings. Hmm. So school boards really, um, don't fall under the problem that the judge was pointing out. But, yeah. he, so, but he is saying yeah, there's ahead. a problem for these health departments. They can't do this. Only lawmakers can do this. Well, he, he, but he exempted certain county health boards. And I think if they had been elected, but it was this idea that the, uh, as uh, uh, Nicole said, the Department of Health and Senior Services had delegated to local health agencies who de- then delegated to an individual bureaucrat. And he said, that's too far removed. And, you know, outside of our normal civics where you're supposed to have elected officials. But he made an exception specifically for county commissions, county councils, and certain county health boards, but didn't specifically, as I recall, didn't specifically list elected school boards, which would seem to be squarely within this as well. And then, you know, so not subject to being um, stop to be able to do these kind of um, actions. So, uh, and it's interesting that he did not let the, you know, St. Louis and um, uh, Jackson County uh, come in because, and you know, another issue is Eric Schmidt, who opposes these, um, was the person defending them, and you know, one of the things that our system. Uh, relies on is people fiercely uh, arguing for their side. We don't want a system where one side's taking a fall or something. And I'm not suggesting that's what happened, but, you know, it looks better when you have people who have a real stake in it and who believe in it fighting for each side. And so I think we'll have, you know, the judge said it's too late. You guys can't come in, but now they have something they can appeal um, and and there may be a chance to reopen this whole thing. Who knows? Yeah, so Mark was referring to a motion filed by Jackson County, St. Louis County, some other counties that attempted yeah. to intervene after the fact and say, hey, before this judgment's final, let us in here. The judge actually just ruled on that yesterday, yesterday. said no. And as Mark alluded to, they're saying, hey, that's a good thing. Now we can take this to the appellate court. Nicole, you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, I was going to say something similar, and I was going to say Mark can be the advanced version. I'll be the basic version here. So the what he's alluding to with the um, attorney general taking a fall is that the attorney general actually re- represents the Department of Health and Human Services, but the attorney general personally believes that we should not have mass mandates in the community. So he's a little conflicted here in that um, he technically lost the case because... The Department of Health and Services now does not have the power that it always had, but he personally is sort of reveling in the win um, by sending out these letters to all these school districts and telling them that they have to now follow the order by refusing to appeal the case. Um, so it's it's a 
it's a very complicated mess. Yeah, N Nicole, so his own client wanted him to appeal. He said, oh, no, I'm not going to appeal. Instead, I'm going to go around enforcing this. I think you make a good point here. Connie, this doesn't seem like something you would want your lawyer to do, to say, no, I'm not going to appeal this. Actually, I'm going to now enforce this for my opponents. Is, the, is it possible that something unethical has happened here? Uh, I, I think that that is a, a great question uh, uh, because, you know, every attorney who takes on a representation has a duty to zealously represent their client and to diligently represent their client. Uh, and in this case, uh, the Missouri Attorney General's office represented the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. Uh, after this judgment was rendered, the Missouri Department of Health and Human Services wanted to appeal the judgment, take it to the next level, uh, instead of the AG's office doing as instructed by its client, uh, the AG's office took a victory lap in their loss. They took a victory lap and began sending out these letters to uh, the local uh, health boards as well as school districts advising them that they are not to uh, establish or to enforce these mass mandates and quarantine requirements. So there definitely appears to be a conflict of interest. And uh, I guess it will be up to the disciplinary committee to determine whether or not there's been some type of ethical violation. But I, I suspect Eric Schmidt would say, look, at my client is not the Department of Health and Senior Services. My client is the state of Missouri. And and so I'm representing the state of Missouri. And, you know, I suspect uh, the chief executive officer, uh, who's Governor Parsons, who is responsible for these agencies, might be taking a view more like what Eric Schmidt is. So I think it's a you know, this is a, this is a complicated issue always for lawyers who, you know, it's, it seems obvious who your client is. Um, you know, and this is what was going on a lot with Donald Trump and the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. You know, the Department of Justice was not the attorney general of the United States was not Donald Trump's lawyer. He was the United States lawyer. And in this case, it's the state of Missouri. So I, I agree, though, it, it doesn't look good and it feels a little weird but we'll get you know my, my hope is you'll get these other litigants who have a, a a firm interest in trying to uphold these laws who will be be able to get in and and make the case. So, Mark, I'm glad you brought up these other litigants because Eric Schmidt opposed them being able to yeah. intervene in the case. And his argument for doing such, I was like, is this man now in charge of the whole state? He said the attorney general holds the final authority on whether yeah. to file a appeals on behalf of the state. Counties and public health departments aren't, quote, second chair attorneys general, his office wrote. Motions to intervene are, quote, clear attempts to circumvent the attorney general's exclusive authority. Is he saying that these these counties counties that are directly affected, they don't even have the right to try to get in there and, and express yeah. what they're saying? Yeah, I, I, I don't understand that at all, because it seems like while they can't come in and say we represent the state of Missouri, they can represent their own individual interests. He doesn't have the right to say I represent your interests as well. So, um, yeah, I, I just think it's 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 too bad and it's going to just muddle the waters for a long time because attorneys you know, we take forever to get things worked out and and it's going to keep being battled around. And 
But you Mark, know, I'm, I'm glad you said that, and I didn't. You attorneys do take yeah. a while to, to bat these things around. Nicole, bigger question here. You know, people are wondering, why didn't St. Louis County and Jackson County intervene sooner? Um, no. Because this obviously is now having huge repercussions across the state. There's all these county health departments and smaller counties have just laid down their sword, given up, and are going home and, and planting the proverbial potatoes. Um, is this something where they, if they had done this earlier, they would have had an easier chance? at it. I do think that's the actual reason why they weren't allowed to intervene. I I don't think it's because of Attorney General Schmidt's argument. I think it's because of the timing. And, I, you know, intervening in a case at this point, you know, there is a lot of law on when it's appropriate to intervene. And I think that is actually the problem in this case. And yeah, I do think that if they had intervened earlier, it would have been different. The only thing is, as the judge even said in his ruling, it's been this way for over 100 years. Who knew this was going right. to happen? And so mm-hmm. I understand why they didn't. And um, again, that's why this is such you know, a mess. So, Connie, one other part of this that I hear a lot of people um, on social media commenting on who themselves do not appear to be lawyers. Um, I hear people saying, oh, well, the attorney general has said this. His opinion is binding. These school districts, you know, even if as our expert panel here is saying, oh, this doesn't apply to school districts, these school districts need to listen. Uh, Once he issues one of these opinions, it's our job to get in line. Is that your understanding of how these things work? Uh, no, that's not my understanding of how these things work. Uh, there's a thing called precedent. <laughs> and if you just look at this judgment that was entered by this court, the, the judge says in the opening sentence that this is about the Missouri Department of Health and Human Services, whether they had the authority to close schools and assemblies based upon the unfettered opinion of an, unle- an unelected official. So the judge narrows the scope of this judgment and who it applies to in his rationale for issuing the decision. So no school district and the Board of Education was not a party to this litigation, was not a defendant in this litigation. So for the attorney general's office to then turn and issue these letters to the school districts and say that, no, you don't have the power to issue these mass mandates or these closures or these quarantine procedures uh, uh, I think that that's far field. And, and the courts have specifically said, you know, you can ask the attorney general for an opinion and he'll written, sometimes issue a written opinion of what the law is. I have a question. Um, that may be pref, um, uh, persuasive authority, but it's not binding authority. So, you know, one of the things you've learned quickly in law school, I went to law school thinking I'm going to learn the law. They're just going to teach me all the rules and I'll know it. And which, you know, would make law school pretty boring. I mean, even more boring than it already is. But (laughs) but what you learn, the law is not, it is these set of rules, but it's also because there's, it's so hard to be precise and anticipate every situation. So what the the law really is, is what some judge is going to say it is. And, and you've got, you know, we've got these appellate judges then that may say, hey, you lower court judge got it wrong. The law is really this, and then you take it to the next one. So much more dynamic and much more wiggly, which is not comfortable because people want it to be like the laws of nature. You know, gravity is always gravity. That's not the way the laws that we have work. One other interesting, I think, uh, aspect of this, uh, I don't know if you've seen that uh, the treasurer, Missouri uh, treasurer, Scott Fitz, 
Fitzpatrick is saying he's going to look at any, I think this is what he's saying, he's going to look at any school board that's got bond issues, and if they're not following uh, what uh, the Missouri Attorney General has said, he's going to slow up their money or raise the interest rate. Yeah, they can't get in on this program that he administers. So, you know, this is, you know, political stuff is entering in. I mean, that happens all the time. It's just too bad. But that seems so frustrating. If what uh, yeah. Mark you're saying and what Connie is saying is correct, and I have no reason to doubt this, then it seems like he's trying to say you have to follow this opinion when the law says this opinion doesn't have to be followed. Like, can't some lawyer take him aside and share what you just shared with me? Well, I mean, yeah, um, we can still until somebody says no, you can't. I mean, I had lots of clients. Until somebody says, I can't do it, I'm going to do it. Are you telling me somebody has specifically told me I can't? No, I can't say that. Then let's keep doing it until somebody stops us. That happens all the time. And I think when you have people with political agendas, that happens. Boy, it is a state of confusion and chaos in Missouri right now. We're all going to be watching what happens at that appellate court. It does sound like some of these counties that were not allowed to intervene, they are now going to appeal that. Uh, We're going to keep an eye on this case. And of course, today I'm talking about our legal roundtable because they are here with us. That is attorney Mark Smith. We're also joined by attorneys Connie McFarland Butler and Nicole Gorofsky. We do need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll discuss legal trouble for St. Louis's own Gateway Pundit. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis. Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Today, our legal roundtable is in session. Now, we've been talking about the Amazon and its uh, response to the tornado. We've been talking about the state of confusion around uh, mask mandates uh, throughout the state of Missouri. Now, let's talk about the Gateway Pundit. This is basically a pro-Trump website based in St. Louis. That makes it sound like eh, this is maybe just one of those little blogs nobody reads. That is not the case with Gateway Pundit. It has a huge reach, an average of 33 million page views every month. That's more than double what MSNBC gets for its website. But editor Jim Hoft is not known for his adherence to the standards of journalism. This site has put election workers and even low-level election workers on blast with some pretty flimsy pretexts. Many of these election workers have then received serious harassment and very detailed death threats. Reuters identified 800 messages received by various local election officials that had death threats involved in them in more than 10 percent the harassers cited the Gateway Pundit as their source of information. Now, the Gateway Pundit currently faces at least three defamation suits. These are filed by uh, different people or groups of people who allege they face threats after being vilified in false stories. Nicole, what would it take for these people to succeed with a defamation claim against this website? Yeah, so it has to meet the elements of defamation and I think this is such a perfect segue from what Mark Smith was just saying a minute ago, which is, you know, this is why when you ask a lawyer a question, the answer is always, it depends. So, you know, when you want to 
you know, when you ask a person, is it going to meet the elements of threat, harassment, or defamation, you know, again, the answer is it depends. So apparently some of these people are going to the police and trying to get them to enforce laws regarding, you know, harassment or um, going to civil attorneys and trying to get defamation lawsuits. And, you know, the winds change. And are we going to get a jury to... Um, go for that case and are we going to get uh, the police officers in this time to file a case on that and um, like I said it has to meet the elements and it has to have like I said even earlier in the show we have to do that risk assessment is it going to make it um, how is it going to look to a jury in in this situation and so far, unfortunately, these people who are going, you know, for these cases are not having success. And um, I think that's a scary state of the law because these are, you know, in my opinion, at least real threats, real defamation mm -hmm. cases. Um, so they've, but, had no, they've had no luck going after the, the people making the threats to them. But I wonder about the role of this gateway pundit. You know, one of these women, this just was shocking to read about. She was just a temp worker brought in to process ballots. And she ended up being identified and named and, and suffering a ton of harassment over this after the gateway pundit claimed that she and her mother, who was an elections commissioner, were, quote, crooked Democrats, uh, claimed that they pulled out suitcases full of ballots and began counting those ballots without election monitors in the room. The Georgia Secretary of State's office found that these two women did nothing wrong. Connie, do you think they could have a claim against this website? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I believe that they can file a claim for defamation. Uh, however, defamation lawsuits are, are difficult in general uh, when you have your ordinary plaintiff. Uh, when you have a public official or someone who's actually in the public eye, uh, the bar is actually raised a bit higher. Not only do you have to prove that the allegation is false, you have to demonstrate that you have suffered actual harm as a result of the publication that was false. And then if you are a public official or someone in the public eye, you have to prove that the publisher knew that their information was false or that the publisher operated with reckless disregard for the truth prior to publication. And oftentimes that can be an uphill battle for individuals who are public officers and people who are, you know, uh, 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 famous individuals, people who are in the public eye. So somebody who's an elections commissioner, they might have a really hard time. But I'm thinking about this temp worker, the mom that was brought in. Mark, if I'm a newspaper publisher, I'm a little bit worried here because I'm saying, oh, shoot, this is this woman's a private citizen. Right. It's it's tougher. But you have a news organization. And this gateway pundit was given press credentials by the Trump administration. Um, so I think they've got a good argument. They're a news organization. And. You know, the fact that they've gotten some things wrong, um, even though they're pretty egregious, I, I still think because it's a news agency, you know, you go back to Sullivan versus The New York Times, which was the big kind of case where there were these ads that were in The New York Times about it was going back to MLK times and there were some factual errors and and some of these sheriffs and stuff tried to sue the New York Times and the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to let you do that. And, you know, Gateway Pundit is not the one. I mean, I'm not defending the Gateway Pundit, but I, I am defending the First Amendment. The um, it's the the other people who then are threatening. No, Gateway Pundit is not threatening these people. It's made outrageous claims and. Um, 
but I'm not sure that they're going to be able to prove he knew that these were false when he posted mm -hmm. them. He's going to have some argument. Well, we thought they were, were true. And so I think it's going to be it's going to be tough to beat this guy this way. Oh, so that's kind of depressing. I feel like this guy is. Is, is, you know, a lot of people think of him as a scourge and, you know, just very reckless. But he might be able to get away with being reckless if it's mostly public officials and, and he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. Mark, is it yeah. the First Amendment I mean, protects him as much as me? Particularly for the uh, public officials, it's going to be really hard. The, as you said, a private individual is a little bit easier. But when you have a news organization, um, you know, the courts just hate doing something that's going to chill, uh, you know, the fourth estate here. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I, of all people, should be happy about that. I'm going to find a way to be happy. But if boy, had, I feel bad for these election workers. If we had Bill here, he would do a stirring defense much better than mine, I'm sure. <laughs> well, well they, they, you know, the other option that we do have available is that there are hundreds of companies that are advertising uh, yeah. on this website. And so, you know, uh, it's the true American way. Just hit them in the pocket. Right. Uh, if uh, the other advertisers like Google back in, I believe, in September of this year, Google took a stance uh, with, res uh, with respect to the pundit and they terminated their advertisement on the website. And I read some news article which indicated that for the 10 months prior to that termination, Google had spent about $1.3 million in advertisement on that site. So uh, we need to apply pressure to some of these companies who are advertising with the pundit. And hopefully, if enough companies join in, then that will steer the company in the right direction. Another interesting approach, and I'm not sure you could do it here, but the Southern Poverty Law Center went after the Ku Klux Klan with a RICO claim. And RICO was intended to go after organized crime. But what you need is an organization that has an overt act that's illegal, and then you show some kind of working together. And, you know, you'd need an overt act, but it seems like um, I, I got to believe there's some interaction between these posters and the folks there. And so that might mm. be. And what they did was then they sued him for damages and just put him out of business. That's interesting. You know, this center. is a, a good reminder that the law is not the only cudgel. There's all sorts of yes. ways that eventually uh, people who are not behaving properly can be taken down. So thank you for that reminder, Connie. Yeah, and, and the law is always evolving and it comes up, you know, you get smart lawyers who think of new theories and then it's, that's one of the beauties of it. See, I, I was giving you guys a hard time for sometimes lawyers <laughs> take their time, but eventually, you know, yes. the, the arc bends towards justice. We have to believe yes. that here. So look, on the that subject. justice grinds Exactly. <laughs> they, they do. It drives me crazy sometimes. So the feds, they have a new initiative. This is a national initiative. It's called the Money Mule Initiative. Money mules are people who apparently help scammers by providing valuable services on the ground. A lot of these scammers are in Nigeria. People in the U.S. help facilitate their fraud. So an 81-year-old Kirkwood woman is the star of a new video released by the federal prosecutors this past month. Glenda Syme talks about falling in love with a man online in 2014. Turns out this guy was really a scammer from Nigeria. She later opened bank accounts that scammers used to deposit money from his other victims. I want to play you a brief excerpt from this video. This just broke my heart. Since 2015, bank employees, local police officers, and federal agents told me that my love was a scam 
and that I needed to stop or I could go to jail. I didn't listen to anyone else but my love, the love I've never seen nor spoken to. Now I don't have a choice of whom I'll listen to. On November the 2nd, 2021, I pled guilty to two federal felonies. I'll be listening to the judge now. And that is an 81-year-old Kirkwood woman. Um, They charged her with two felonies. Nicole, this just breaks my heart. I mean, this woman was clearly taken with some scam artist. Two felonies. I know, right? What do you make of this? Yes. Yeah, I look, it it is incredibly depressing and you know, obviously our hearts go out to her. Um, but apparently, you know, she, you know from from the details, she was told multiple times that she needed to stop. So what happened was she this this person who was a scammer was having her open um post office boxes uh all over the area so that she could help in scamming other women mm-hmm. into um, losing their money. So I think she lost money and then scammed other women into losing their entire life savings. It's just a tragic story. My guess is, you know, in part she was charged in order to then turn on, you know, the attempt to get, you know, the higher, you know, the 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 bigger fish, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get the, ult- and I think they did ultimately get the, um, you know, the head of the scheme. It is absolutely tragic. It is absolutely horrible. And um, it is what it is. A lot of people lost a lot of money. It's yeah. depressing as heck. So in our, our final minute here, um, you know, it's good to see the federal government is trying to proactively stop these scams, I guess. Uh, Mark, what should be the moral of this story? Yeah, I, I don't know, to tell you the truth. I mean, when I read this, I was just thinking about my mother, who's in her late 80s, and my mother-in-law, who's in her late 90s. And, you know, uh, I, I, you know, whenever they get a call or something, they're all, you know, particularly my mother gets all worked up. This is I have to do something. And it's like, no, you don't. You know, unless my, my sister or I tell you to do something, you don't have to do anything. And there are all these people out preying on, yeah. on people. And it, I mean, it's been going on. Uh, and there are there are, there are attempts to legislate, but it's just really hard. I think you know this whole situation. Don't be a money mule. If someone is listening to yeah. this, if some man you've never met, you think you're in love with him, and he wants you to participate in complicated financial transactions, I'm here on behalf of the Legal Roundtable to say, don't do it. I want to thank and our Legal Roundtable. And if something sounds too good to be true, it's not true. This is okay. There you yeah. go. I want to thank our Legal Roundtable for joining us today. This was an excellent discussion. Mark Smith, thank you for joining us. Thanks. And Nicole Garofsky of Garofsky Law, thank you. Thank you. And Connie McFarland Butler of the Law Office of Connie McFarland Butler, thank you so much. Thank you. Happy holidays, all. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.
you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.